Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. Go to swimpractice.com to check it out. All right, Eric Chanteau, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, and listen, where are you coming from today? So I uh, actually just recently moved back to Austin, Texas about, gosh, five months ago now. So uh, moved in the middle of a pandemic, which is never easy. <laughs> and you came from L.A.? Yep, came from L.A., had spent uh, the past nine years out there in the Playa Vista, Marina del Rey area. Nice. That's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm in, uh, I'm in Playa Vista as well. So, uh, yeah, we would have been, uh, we, we would have been neighbors. <laughs> we, we, we tagged each other in and out. So I'm that's in. right. That's right. It's not a big beach city. So it's, uh, I'm sure I know exactly where you are. Yeah. Um, so listen, uh, incredible life story, man. For those that, that don't know you, you are a two-time Olympian, uh, for, for team USA. And, uh, but that's, that's kind of just part of your story. You, you really have an incredible story and I've been dying to get you on the podcast to chat with you so people can, can hear you speak and just share your, your journey uh, with us. So, um, in terms of, you know, I I look at this, I I approach this in a way of like, let's just get to know you. I'm not going to come in and tell you what you did. You, you tell me about your life and we can kind of explore it from that angle. So in terms of just where swimming started for you, what was that? Yeah. So, so swimming started for me at a very early age. I, um, I learned to swim when I was three years old. Uh, my mom took me to, uh, just a, a neighbor's house within our, our, uh, little community there in, in Lowburn, Georgia, who, uh, the woman had a pool in her backyard and, uh, taught infants and small kids how to swim, you know, as, as just for, for pure swimming safety and uh, really took to it. I mean, learned quickly from what I understand and, and love the water and love the pool. And, and from there, I really just followed my older brother uh, into it. My, my older brother, Ryan, is, is almost four years older than me. So, you know, everything he did was, was amazing and I wanted to do what he did. So, uh, you know, when he joined the swim team, uh, I joined the swim team and, and we started out, um, when I was five, I started out on the four winds flyers. That was our, that was our neighborhood <laughs> team. So, uh, you know, that's where I, I got, I would say my introduction into, you know, we'll call it structured swimming and, and learning the technique of the four strokes. Nice. Now, before you get to college, obviously there's, there's a whole period of, of high school and, and growing up in Georgia, who were, who were your influences? Who were the coaches that got you through that period of your of life? Yeah, I mean, I can go through and, and name them pretty much from that early age on. I mean, Kevin Greenwood is the one who taught me the strokes, Okay, uh, going all the way back to, you know, five, six, seven years old. Um, and then at, at, at seven, I joined uh, the club team Swim Atlanta. And uh, that's really where I would say my career at that point, if you even want to call it a career, (laughs) but that's really where things took off for me and, and, and swam in my, my age group years under, uh, Stuart Wilson and and Henry Morrow. But then when I got to my freshman year of high school, I I was able to, uh, get put on the senior team and, um, swam under Chris Davis, um, who, who, yeah. So, so, you know, Chris, Chris founded and started swim Atlanta. Gosh, almost 40 years ago now, I would say, or maybe even longer than that back in the seventies. So, um, that was, you know, I had known Chris as I grew up throughout his program at Swim Atlanta, just in the age group ranks, but then, uh, got on his team when I was a freshman. And I would still say to this day, despite the incredible group of coaches that I have been able to swim under, Chris has been, the most influential throughout my entire career, uh, starting freshman year of high school, um, and, and really had a major impact all the way up until the day I retired. Um, so that's interesting to me though. I mean, obviously I know Chris personally as well. And and like you said, he's, he's been in that game and and, and that area for 40 years, influencing kids from, for generations. And, and I agree. I mean, Chris is a, a great man, but tell me why you would say that. So in high school, and again, this is going back 25 years now, um, Chris gave me the foundation for my mm-hmm. career. Yep. Uh, and, and it is not necessarily, I would say, the popular training method these days mm-hmm. where it was more focused on 
a volume metric as opposed to maybe a quality metric. Mm -hmm. But again, um, at that time, when you're a 15, 16, 17 year old kid in high school, you don't know what it's like when, when a coach, when a coach asks you to go race pace or go all out in practice, you're not necessarily going to do that. Right. So they, they relied on, on volume at that time. So it wasn't uncommon, uncommon for us to do 10 grand in two hours Mm. and just get in and swim plain and simple, just swim, put that foundation in and put that work ethic in. Um, but that being said, and I still credit Chris to this day for doing this, um, we didn't do doubles in high school except for the summer. Mm. So when the school year was in session, it's not like I was getting up at five o'clock in the morning and swimming for an hour and a half before I went to, to class. Um, and I, I know he was one of the rare coaches that had elite swimmers that did that. Most of them did at least two doubles a week with their teams. And, uh, you know, I, I attribute the length of my career and the longevity of it to that mentality and not having to do that insane number of workouts at an early age, because I've seen so many kids you know, burn out before their time uh, w- was peaked. And I, and I think that's really what happens is, uh, is, is their work so hard from an early age that it's, it's tough, you know, whether it be physically uh, from a, from an injury standpoint, or just emotionally getting burnt on the sport. So, you know, Chris, I think had the perfect balance of addressing it in a way where when we're here, we're going to work mm. and it's going to be hard and we're going to mm. put in the volume. Uh, but when you're not, you know, you can enjoy being a high schooler. Did, did he uh, encourage that for you to play other sports, do other things? Was that part of the reason? You know, by the time I got to Chris, I was dedicated to swimming. I, yeah. I was a good soccer player growing up mm-hmm. um, until the age of, of, of nine, 10 years old. And, and that's when my parents looked at me and, and um, you know, they said, look, you're, you're good at two sports. If you want to be great at one, it'd probably be best if you picked one. And they left it up to me. They did not push one way or the other. Mm. I was a little bit better at swimming. So I picked swimming and I actually went back to soccer for one season when I was 12. And, uh, and, and that was, it I was like, okay, no, I, I, I need to stick with swimming. So, um, yeah, Chris, I mean, again, at that point I was committed to swimming. It wasn't necessarily a, a pressure or an encouragement from Chris by any means. Now, was it the fact that you were inclined to, uh, prone to more distance events genetically uh, that you were able to connect with the volume itself? Like were, were people around you that weren't your makeup, were they being broken by the volume or was it a group wide thing where because you're only doing singles, everybody was thriving? It was, it was more or less a group wide thing. Um, of course, you know, the, the kids who were more focused on the fifties and hundreds um, did a little bit different sets but for the most part, you know, even then where we were going 10,000, they were still going 8,000, which, mm-hmm. you know, for a sprinter is insane. Yeah. Um, but again, you have to remember the time we were in. So for me, and I think this is another reason why I probably had success later on in my career. I was such a late bloomer, um, you know, in terms of growth mm-hmm. and, and strength and maturity physically that, uh, you know, I was able to, to handle, handle that workload early on. And that was just my, I think my, my mentality too, in terms of attacking things like that and wanting the challenge. Yeah. Talk to me about your mentality. I mean, it, most people develop a mentality over time. Um, but, but the ones that seem to have success and longevity in the sport are, are kind of born with a certain mentality as well. So what was it about you that you maybe recognize now that, you know, kind of separated you from other people? looking back on it and it's only looking back on it that I can identify it right after gosh, 10 years now of, of being retired, almost 10 years, but it's the ability to compartmentalize things. Mm. And this isn't necessarily a healthy mentality to have for life. Mm. Um, but the ability to, to handle pressure, to handle intense situations, to handle high stress, high anxiety. I was really good at compartmentalizing things. Mm. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure we'll get into that, that, uh, aided me very well throughout my career, but it's, it's being able to simplify things in my own head, not put pressure on certain situations or certain circumstances, uh, 
mm. and get the job done. It's funny you mentioned that because I was actually just within the last 30 minutes listening to a podcast that came out just recently with Michael Phelps, one of your former teammates, and, and he was talking about this exact same thing. The fact that he was great at compartmentalizing, but hasn't necessarily been good in all facets of his life, right. you know, and, um, and, and we can kind of go into how it's been good and maybe challenging for you as well at times. But obviously at that age, it was about his, his, what you have to do right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I'm going to be as good as I possibly can at it. So was there, was there a mentality of, for you of like, when you crossed through the threshold of walking into the pool, you were the athlete and you were switched on and you were prepared to push as hard as you needed to, irrespective of what was going on outside. I would a hundred percent agree with that where, you know, when I, when I dove in the water, yep. everything else kind of faded away. Mm-hmm. It didn't, didn't matter what was going on in life. Uh, swimming was my escape. You know, mm-hmm. that, that black lion on the bottom of the pool was my escape. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was able to turn everything off. You know, it was, it was my therapy, I guess is, is probably a good way to put it where, you know, you can disconnect and concentrate on the set in front of you or the practice in front of you or the race in front of you. And that was it. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about it uh, later on in, in the podcast here in terms of how that has been challenging uh, in, in real life situations. You know, once you, once you leave swimming behind, there's no black line anymore. There's no way that you can kind of switch that off anymore. So it, it doesn't apply to life real well at times. So we'll, we'll chat about that. But in terms of your, your next step and progression in life, you then uh, do make the choice to, to swim at Auburn University. And, and I had one of your former teammates on George Bravel just recently, and, and he was talking to us about the fact that you were part of that team that came in and and never got beat right you were you right. part of that you were part of that four-year group that didn't lose a dual meet didn't lose an sec or didn't lose an ncaa is that correct yeah it's uh the 32 four and four is what it is and it's uh 32 and 0 for dual meets four and 0 for sec meets and, and four and 0 for uh for ncaa meets so um yeah myself george Ravel, kurt katie and doug van we were the uh the four that that kind of made it through that class unbroken without redshirting or, or or obviously leaving the program and um you know to this day i'm, I'm sure it maybe it's been replicated i don't know I, I, no. I know the, no 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 yeah i, I don't know i don't know <laughs> no. um I, you know i know the class that came after me um uh, uh those groups of the juniors when i was a senior they won everything except that next year they lost their dual meet to Texas. And that was, that was their one hiccup and the one blemish on their record that they can't claim the same that we did. So, uh, you know, in terms of other sports, again, I don't know, but um, it, it was neat. And, and we knew our senior year that uh, this was the goal and, and, oh my gosh, we've come this far. We've got the team. We can't lose it now. And uh, it, it was special. I mean, special is an understatement. It, it, it just looking back on it, you know, you take it one step at a time, you take it one meet one year at a time and, and you just start stringing this together. You know, when, I, when you talk about those four guys uh, who were part of that group, you know, in, in their own way, I can look at each one of them and say they were leaders in their own respect and, the, and they took ownership in certain areas what was your role in that? Where did you fit in, in, in the group of the four? Yeah, I would say for me, it was being reliable. Um, not necessarily, you know, George, George early on established himself as, and I say early on, I mean, he was an NCAA champion in the 200 IM his freshman year. Mm. Um, and so that's an elite class all by itself to win, to win that meet at any point, but then to win it when you're a freshman. Um, so George, I, I would say, you know, he, he established himself early on as, as the rock star, right. Um, and, and for me, I think when I look back on my career, whether it be collegiately or after that, um, but especially in college and especially our senior year, it was, it was being that, that reliable teammate that, Hey, we need this race one, or, or we need this set up in a certain way. Uh, I was able to, to deliver on that. You know, when, look, it's the magic, it's the secret sauce. Every coach in the NCAA, you know, division one swimming right now is trying to do exactly what you guys did four years in a row, but they're, they're trying to do it just once. So is there a secret sauce? Like what, what is the message that you could give out to a team, a coach, uh, you know, to say, 
look, you, you have to be doing these things in order to, to win the national championship. You have to have these things in place. Well, there's just like any other sport and it's, it's asked all the time. And of course there is no secret sauce, but at the end of the day, it's also really simple. Go a best time period. And, and, and the domino effect from going a best time will then trickle down into, all right, let's say you have a top 10 program, but you're not competing for a national championship. Well, if your swimmers start going the best time, they're going to get faster and therefore they're going to attract faster recruits. Right. And so eventually that top 10 program is going to be moved up and moved to a program that's competing for a national championship. And then when you're competing for a national championship, you have the talent pool, the work ethic of a group of, of individuals around you. Then when you go a best time at NCAAs in the morning, ideally, so you can put yourself in a position to score points at night, uh, that's when you win. And so dumb it down, go a best time. Now, of course, there are dozens and dozens of factors that that aid that very simple model uh and that will enhance that model but uh, at the end of the day go best time get better improve and i think that's really what uh auburn and, and, and david instilled in us because we won a couple of championships on sheer talent but we won them all on depth and mm -hmm. so it wasn't necessarily the superstars that we had. Of course, those helped. But especially my senior year, I mean, Arizona had my senior year, Arizona had had, you know, nine or 10 guys versus our, what do we take 20, I guess, because it was, yeah, 16 swimmers and four divers, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh -huh. So we had double the amount of guys. That's yeah. why we won because of yeah. our depth. And it was because the guys who weren't necessarily the rock stars still scoring points. For a perspective here, just give us the years that you were, we're talking about. Yeah, so the, the first NCAA championship was 2003, so it was 2003, 4, 5, and 6. Okay, so year before the Olympics, year of the Olympics in 04, couple of years after the Olympics. So Correct. Look, look, every time you look at a year, there's, there's certain challenges, you know. Mm -hmm. the, the year, generally, the year before the Olympics, everybody's pretty switched on and engaged, and certainly the year of the Olympics. Uh, the year after the Olympics can be difficult. Was there one particular year in there that was more challenging than the other? If you're asking if, if there was a challenging year in terms of winning, yeah. Um, it was definitely my senior year. So that would have been and 06. 06, the last, the last one for me. Um, more so because, and I think anyone who has been successful and, and put together a, a legacy or a dynasty or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. it's hard to win. Yeah. It's really hard and even harder to repeat. And why, why would you say that? And again, complacency, okay. plain and simple complacency. It yeah. is... It is the killer in anything in life. Mm. Uh, that that's I mean, whether you're in sales like me, you know, you you, you close a deal and uh, all right, I just closed a deal. Well, then managers come along. Great, what have you done for me today? You know, so it's it's a matter of of looking in the mirror and continuing to have that fire and that hunger to do it again. And it's hard when you achieve your goal, right? Then you have to reset higher and higher and higher. And at that point, we had won three years and we'd done it and we'd, we'd reset and we'd reset and we'd found a new identity and we'd found a new culture within the program to continue to win. And to do it that fourth year was by far, in my opinion, the, the biggest challenge because we didn't, we, we were trying, okay, do we replicate what we did last year? Well, no, we know we can't do that. We've got a different group now with a different culture. So, you know, how, how do we find our identity? I think finding our identity, our, our senior year was one of the hardest things for us to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a big factor in that is the coach. And, and we both had the same coach in college. I was there a little bit before you, but we both had David Marsh, who's, you know, going into the International Swimming Hall of Fame uh, as a coach, you know, just a living legend. But from your perspective, what did David do well? David, I think looking back on it, and again, not something that I necessarily understood or realized till probably my senior year, um, David had an uncanny way of nailing the taper. And that is something that is extremely difficult to do, 
right? I mean, you can put in the best body of work over a season or two years or three years. If you don't taper properly and if you don't have the right mentality during taper heading into that big meet, nothing's going to go right. And, and I think to sum up, David, in, in just one thing, which is really difficult to do, right? Yeah. You're, you're talking about an insanely accomplished coach who is a genius when it comes to the sport and, and, and competition and strategy. Um, it is his ability to pull the best out of you during taper. Mm. And, and I would use the example of, you know, all year long on the team, David wasn't the nicest person. Right. Like he, he, he was, he, he, he was difficult, but the reason he did that, at least in my opinion, uh, looking back on it was if he saw the team struggling to come together or find an identity, you know, he would be the bad guy. He would take on that role. Well, well, if, if, if we need a common ground, then come together with your dislike of me Mm -hmm. kind of thing, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And, and he was able to do that all year up until kind of the end of January. And then he became the most incredible best friend you ever had. Yeah. And you loved him. And we all came together under David at that time mm. when we were supposed to peak for championship season and we won mm. and we won <laughs> and we won and we kept winning. So again, didn't it's, it's a total, you know, karate kid kind of Mr. Miyagi moment where, holy cow, we're this championship team. We didn't even know it. Um, and, and he had a plan the whole time. Um, and, and that's where I think part of the genius of, of David comes in apart from his ability to see technique and create uh, practices and, and uh, workouts that are going to make you better. Yeah. Really, really good way to say it. I'm, I'm, I've never kind of intellectualized it that way before. It's, it's uh, very accurate. Um, one of the things I noticed about my teams that I was on and, and, and when we won in 97 and 99, David or the team itself, um, it wasn't about, it wasn't about, it wasn't built on hatred, you know, like we didn't, we, we didn't hate other people, but we walked in with a sense that we're the best team here. Like we are going to walk in and dominate. We're going to own the pool deck. We're going to dominate the, the, the pool um, where we're going to express how great we are. It was, it was more of an expression of greatness, you know, of, of look at us, look, you know, go out there and perform. Um, is that a similar sense that you got? Very much so. And, and it's interesting because by the time my class rolled around, obviously we looked back at your championship teams and the group of men that you had assembled and, and it was it was kind of like idolizing, right? I mean, you, you guys were larger than life the way you did it. And, and we saw the attitude that, that we believed you carried. Mm-hmm. And I would say my first two years, my freshman and, and sophomore year, especially, and, and that sophomore year, 2004, was by far the most special group I was a part of. I think we, we replicated it in a certain way and, and had kind of a similar mentality Um, and that's where I think my junior and senior year teams got into trouble where we tried to do that and that just wasn't natural for us. Mm. And, and, and we kind of found ourselves faking it and, and we had to adjust and we had to find a different way to do it. And that's what the challenge was, especially my senior year. Yeah. Let's go into just a relationship that you had obviously, um, a deep connection with George at the time, but, but you two are swimming similar events, doing similar, you know, doing the same things and, and, and talent wise, probably, probably similar talents. I mean, you're an extremely gifted athlete. He is as well. You're competing in similar events. Uh, at the time I had, you know, Aaron Charla, who we, we were both 50 freestylers and, and we we're both very similar in that sense, but we're both shooting for the same thing. How do you make that work on a team? So that's, that's the challenge, right? When you've got a bunch of rock stars and, and insanely talented individuals who are competing against each other, but at the same time working towards the same goal, um, that's part of the, the, I think, genius of David is getting everyone to not only work individually to be better, but then put that individual effort towards the team. And, and for me and George, you know, I came out of high school 
as, as the number one 400 IM recruit. And, mm-hmm. and he came out as I, I, I'm assuming he's the number one 200 IM recruit. Mm-hmm. And I still had a really damn good 200 IM. And George was light years ahead of me. So I would say for me, and, and especially seeing George, you know, my freshman year, I went from being, you know, a big fish in a small pond to a tiny fish in a huge pond. Mm. And, and it was, it was a humbling experience, probably my first truly humbling experience um, in, in seeing George not only excel freshman year, but again, like I said, win, uh, where, you know, I only finaled, finaled in one event at NCAAs my, my senior year. So I think for me, it was, it was not only looking at George as a competitor, but, but more as someone to go chase. I mean, I, I, again, I, especially freshman year, I wouldn't even put it on the same page, right? He, he was way ahead of me. Um, but then uh, sophomore year rolls around and um, that's when I really, yeah, that was probably possibly the best year of swimming I ever had and um, capped off by probably the biggest disappointment I ever had, which is ironic. But that sophomore year is, is really when I started to, to compete with George. Now, I didn't beat him in the 200 IM, especially at NCAAs. He ended up breaking the world record uh, short course meters that year in, in the 200 IM, if I remember correctly. But, um, you know, was in his league and was able to compete with him. And that elevated my game to then, you know, put me in a position to go after making my first Olympic team in, in 2004. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't think George and I ever had – an unhealthy competition because, you know, he was more of the 200 IM guy and down. I was the 200 IM guy and up. So where he, he had, and especially later on in that, um, in, in, in that, in our careers, um, and he's a sprinter and moved towards being an, an incredible world-class 50 freestyler. And mm-hmm. I moved into breaststroke. So I don't think it was, I think that relationship was never uh it was never unhealthy competition by any means and it wasn't as direct as some of my other relationships ended up being um later on in my career i heard it got a little contentious to tell me if this story is accurate you had you missed the uh olympics uh in 2004 i I think you finished third in the 200 im and the story is that i hear your time would have won you a medal at the olympics is that correct yeah, so that was that. That's kind of what I was referring to earlier in terms of, you know, 2004. Like I said, probably one of the best years in swimming I ever had. Capped off with two third place finishes at Olympic trials in the 200 IM and the 400 IM. 200 IM by two tenths of a second. Hmm. 400 IM by by four tenths of a second. And again, the the kind of the dumping salt on the wound was six weeks later watching Michael and Ryan in the, the 200 IM and Michael and Eric Vent in the 400 IM go on to Athens and win gold and silver. Mm. Right. And, and George won a bronze in, in the 200 IM and the times that they went uh, were faster than what I did at trials, but weren't in the ballpark of me not getting or competing for a medal. So I'm not mm. saying I would have automatically won a medal, obviously, but mm-hmm. you know, I was competing for a medal at those Olympic games had I been able to go. So, you know, looking at it from a point of contention, no, I mean, George, you know, represented a different country and that was not something that I ever was upset by. There's, you know, countless numbers of athletes that come here to train and and then represent different countries. So um, it was more just a frustration that, Oh my gosh, I'm one of the best swimmers in the world. And, uh, and I can't compete on the biggest stage in the world. When you look back at that, period of time is there something that you would have changed to get you on that team like how do you miss a team by by yeah a couple of tenths of a second is there something that's holding you back the person that you look back on and think man if you just had have done this you would have been an olympian at that stage the 400 i am no uh you know i i dropped i think five and a half five seconds to go that time that Mm -hmm. i did in finals okay you know that was that was that was a perfect race. I had yeah. no idea Eric Vent was, he was three lanes away from me. I knew Michael was way out ahead of us, um, but I had no idea I was that close to Vent. I was just putting my head down and racing a 400 IM. The 200 IM, a couple of days later, um, 
that one that, that that's probably still to this day the biggest gut punch I've ever had because you know it 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 was an amazing race for me. I dropped two and a half seconds in finals to go the time that I did, but um, you know it, it just it, there were details that I missed that cost me that race, and they're all on me, you know, plain and simple. Um, but I gave it everything I had. I I can remember with five, six meters left, just, just being like, Oh God, where's the wall, you know? And, uh, and I got out touched plain and simple. I mean, it helps that you're a sophomore at that stage, but it, it could certainly, uh, a break an athlete to, to finish third at two, <laughs> in two events at Olympic trials yeah. and be like, Oh man, I'm, I'm done. You know? Well, so what happened after that, you know, I mean, I mean, David really stepped in and uh, immediately at Long Beach and, and just, just, you know, go to dinner. Here's my credit card. Forget this. And, and let's, you know, let's come back next year uh, in the fall and, and concentrate on the next season. You know, you've had an incredible year. You're one of the best diameters in the world um, and kept it short. Right. And I actually, I went back to Atlanta um, where I'm from and uh, showed up on, on Chris Davis's pool deck at Summit Atlanta, like two weeks later, Chris looks at me, he's like, what the hell are you doing here? Go home and literally kick me off the deck. And, uh, and, and, and I think he talked to David and David was like, yeah, good job. Don't let him swim. So I didn't train for six weeks for the rest of that summer. You know, trials is in, is in mid late June. I didn't swim until I got back on campus mm, in August. Okay, okay. And, and that was the best thing that, that I ever did. I, I, um, you know, spent the time with my high school friends who were not swimmers anymore. And that was probably this day, the best summer I ever had after trials in terms of just relaxing and enjoying myself outside the pool. Awesome. Well, listen, we've talked about the next two years in college. Why did you decide to go professional after that? Because of what happened in 2004, right? <laughs> I, I, I finished my collegiate career in between, you know, really, really at the halfway point of a quadrennial. Um, so it was 2006, two more years till the 2008 games. Um, I wanted to make an Olympic team. You know, that had, that had been my dream since I was nine, 10 years old. And I'd come that close, you know, like that close to your dream and, uh, and to have it slip through your fingers. Um, I wanted to be an Olympian end of story. And, and, uh, to come back around to where we started, I, I finished my senior year at college, you know, we won, but I didn't have a great NCAA as my senior year. I'll always remember this phone call. I'd flown out to, uh, to Santa Barbara to see, to see my best friend, Miles. Um, and we were taking a road trip from Santa Barbara down to Phoenix for, for, uh, for my spring break and, and just spending it with him. Right. And uh, we're out in the middle of the desert somewhere driving and I get a phone call from Chris and, and Miles had trained with me at, at some Atlanta um, in high school. So, you know, answer the phone and Chris says, listen, I know you're not done. I know you haven't seen the best swimming you can possibly have. I don't think your stroke looks very good. In particular, your breaststroke. I don't want to talk about swimming right now. I don't, I know you don't want to think about swimming right now, but I've already called Eddie Reese out of Texas and he'd love to have you train for the summer. Think about it. Call me next week. That was it. And, uh, two weeks later, <laughs> I am on my way to the university of Texas, my arch rival, my nemesis for the past four years to train with that team and to train with Eddie Reese. And, uh, it, it was something I never would have done without Chris's guidance. And this was, you know, his, his first time in, in four years. But again, like I mentioned, he always had this knack of coming in and steering me in the right direction at the right time. And he did that with Eddie and, and, and to make that call and, uh, and do that for me. And then obviously Eddie to take me, um, I had no idea what it was going to do for me. And, and obviously we, the, I think the results speak for themselves and, and, and that's where 
I left individual medley and started swimming breaststroke at the age of 23 years old. Who, who switches best events when they're 23? I guess I do. But, you know, for Is me, that your it was, decision or Eddie's? Well, it, really what happened, um, I think the icing on the cake was I spent. So I, I spent that summer with Eddie about six and a half, seven weeks training. And he and Brendan Hansen um, completely redid my breaststroke with, mm. with two insanely simple technique changes that were ridiculously hard to make. But, um, you know, Eddie's whole philosophy was stop trying to beat Michael and Ryan. Let's go around them. You know, you've got a really good breaststroke. It's not as good as your, I am, but you know, let's, let's see if we can model it after Brendan's and, and see what we can do in the breaststroke events. And, and that summer at nationals, which was qualifying for world championships and pan packs for, for the following year. Um, you know, I, I, again, swim out of my mind in the IM, drop another second and a half based on where I was at trials in 2004 and the 200, drop two more, uh, almost two more seconds in the 400 IM. But again, I get third at trials and qualifying. And at this point, I'm now ranked third in the world in the 200 IM, but I'm still behind Michael and Ryan, who are three seconds ahead of me. So it, it's not even like, oh, I'm close to these guys. They have separated themselves between themselves and the rest of the world by so much, it was ridiculous. So again, two more third place finishes than I am, but I dropped six and a half seconds in that summer with my new breaststroke, go from a 217 in the 200 meter breaststroke to a 211 mm. and get second at nationals in the 200 breaststroke to qualify for my first, you know, a national team, i.e. the world championship team. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, can you, Tell us what those two simple changes yeah. were. Yeah, they're, they're not secrets by any means. And, and this is where Eddie's genius as a coach comes into play, where, where he, can, he can simplify things that are so complex yep. and make them so easy and make them make sense that it, it's, it's shocking. And mm. so for me, uh, the first one was pull wider, right? Mm. So um, at that time we were swimming, I was swimming with a breaststroke technique that was narrow and fast, right? Keep your head down, narrow and fast. That's what people do now. Well, <laughs> I, I guess things are changing. I mean, look, I, I haven't necessarily studied Adam P, but he's got a real high tempo. That's all I know. And yeah. You can't argue with anything that guy's doing right now. No. But, um, but for me, it was pull wider. So make sure when you finish your out sweep, your fingertips are pointing at the lane ropes. That's wide. I mean, that is literally having your wingspan almost straight out. Okay. Yeah. So that was the first one. Whereas before I was probably stopping my hands and starting my in sweep at like maybe 45, 50 degree angles, you know, um, the next one was at the very last minute when you think it's too late on your in sweep, wait one second longer and then pick your head up to take your breath and look straight down at the other end of the pool. Whereas before I was not picking my head up, keeping it down, you know, keeping it nice and in line with your spine yeah, and not moving my head at all. So this was stop doing that. Pick your head up, look straight down at the other end of the pool, take your breath, put it back down and get back in line. What that did, it enables you to slide your hips naturally under you. Breaststroke is the only stroke with a dead motion, right? It's the only... It's the only place when you look at a velocity graph on a stroke, and they do this at, at the training center, breaststroke has a dead spot, mm. right? Or it did. I, I mean, it, now with the way they're swimming, maybe it doesn't. Maybe the, the guys have found ways to eliminate it. But this was a way to minimize that dead space and also get your hips in the proper position to set you up for an explosive propulsion forward. Mm. And you do that by lifting your head straight up. Again, you watch Brendan swim. All the pictures he had, he's looking straight forward. That so was is this a, is this a swim. technique that Eddie was teaching all his breaststrokers, or was this these changes specific to you? He, to my understanding, he was he was teaching everyone. You know, again, Eddie's philosophy, and I'm assuming it hasn't changed. It's pretty simple. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it was, it was ironic because, you know, people would come to Eddie and, and, and observe him and, and watch him and how he coached and trained. And the joke was, guys, I'm doing the same thing I am today 
that I was in 1980, mm. you know, and in, in, in the 70s when I was coaching swimmers. Nothing's changed. It's all the same. Um, it just works. Just really and, good and, stuff. And, <laughs> just really good stuff. Yeah. And uh, and and so that's where, yeah, he was he was modeling everyone's breaststroke like that. Now again, there are details that come into play that will make someone you know, faster or more efficient than someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and those are the intangibles, but from a, from a raw perspective, it was those two changes. Now, look, I already had a very narrow fast kick to go along with that. That was just Mm -hmm. something that I had naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe he has a tip for the kick, but I never needed it because I had a really fast, narrow kick. Sure. Gotcha. So 2007 was, was a, a shift for you, but, but 2008 was really the year that changed your life uh, completely in, in a few different ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's where, you know, we come back to the notion of, of compartmentalizing, right. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea of, of being able to, to deal with high pressure, intense, stressful situations. And uh, it's obviously been well-documented throughout the years, but uh, I think giving the background that we just did, it, it, it's, probably more set up than I've ever given in, in, in any interview ever of what 2008 meant to me mm. and why it was so difficult being diagnosed with testicular cancer two weeks before Olympic trials. Mm. You know, I, 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 at that time, um, giving everything we just talked about, I'd now established myself as the second best 200 breaststroker in the country. And, um, and, am in a very good position to make my first Olympic team and, and kind of, you know, erase that. I don't know. Trauma is the right word, but, but uh, you know, correct the memory of, of 2004. Uh, and so it's, it, it really was um, a gut punch is a way to put it, but, but uh, you know, being diagnosed with testicular cancer that close to Olympic trials in 2008 after everything I'd been through for the past four years and, and every place that I had come was, was just brutal. Well, obviously now you have a comfort level in talking about it. And there's, there's, there's probably a message that, that you send to, to men in general. Uh, what were the symptoms? Yeah. And this is something that I spent the next decade being an advocate for. And still to this day, you know, it, it, it extends outside of just testicular cancer, but obviously has the focus on, on men's health and, and testicular cancer. But, you know, for me, uh, the first time, um, I just felt a lump. I was, I was, I was laying in bed one night, uh, reading my book and, and just felt a lump. That's all there was. I'm like, ah, you know, that's, that's kind of weird. It doesn't hurt. It's not big or anything. Cause everybody, you know, remembers Lance Armstrong's story where his, his testicle was the size of an orange. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that was not my case. Um, it was very, very early on, but just felt something that shouldn't be there. And, uh, you know, with the uh, strong encouragement of, of, of Jerry, my wife, uh, you know, we, we'd been dating for a while at that time, you know, she's like, no, you're, you need to go see someone. Right. Mm. And, and, and I will definitely attribute her to, to pushing me to go see someone before Olympic trials to, to get it taken care of, which in the grand scheme of things, thank God she did. Um, but that's the, that, that's the problem that we face in terms of, of a lot of cancers is people ignore symptoms sure, and they will go months or years without doing anything about it. And then when they finally do be out of necessity, uh, you know, they're facing stage three, stage four and, and dire circumstances as opposed to addressing it early and treating it early and, uh, you know, getting the, uh, the attention that you need. Wow. So look, you, so you get this diagnosis as a couple of weeks out from Olympic trials, um, you know, just briefly, obviously what's the decision-making there then? Yeah. The decision-making was brutal. <laughs> and, um, I, so, and this is, this is something that really attributes what we were talking about earlier to the compartmentalizing of what I was able to do. Um, so I, I am officially diagnosed with testicular cancer eight days before Olympic trial starts. Okay. So I'm talking to my doctors and, uh, at this point I, I've got the live strong foundation involved. They, they have, um, given me access to the foremost thinkers in testicular cancer, literally the, the doctors who have established the current modern day protocols for not only the treatments, but the, the chemotherapy plans. I mean, these, the best in the world that are in my corner. 
And they all came to the, the agreement that, yes, you can go to trials and compete. But if you make the Olympic team, more than likely, you're not going to stay on the team. You have mm. to get treatment. Wow. So good luck. <laughs> you know, and that, that's how I went to Omaha in 2008 uh, of, of the mentality that even if I make it, my dreams come true. I'm probably not going. But looking back on it, that's where I just compartmentalized it. Look at Olympic trials and stop there. Focus on the first task in front of you, not two or three steps down the line. Mm. Wow. Okay. Now, whether that's healthy or not is up for debate, right? And, and that's where you and I can, can get into conversations with everyone else of, you know, taking that approach to life after mm. swimming, yeah. uh, like you mentioned earlier, maybe sure. not the, the best thing to do in life. But again, that's how I approached it and uh, made the team and started you know, a very difficult six weeks of an Olympic training camp where the first decision was, uh, you know, I, I had to fly back to Austin, get another round of blood tests, get more chest x-rays, get another CT scan to find out if uh, any of my markers had advanced at all. Right. You know, anything was elevated, if they saw any spread or anything like that. Everything was, was rock solid. It was very mm. stable, mm. which is just dumb luck, right? I, plain and simple, just, just, just lucky that I hadn't, that I hadn't shown advancement. So they came up with a plan when I say they, you know, my team, my team of doctors said, look, you can go back to training camp. Um, if you agree to do weekly tests, this weekly battery of tests, if we see stability for the next four weeks while you're at training camps, uh, out in Stanford, then, you know, you can go to the Olympics and compete. The decision's on you. You know, you have to understand that from a medical profession, we are not advocating this, mm. but we'll give you the choice. You know, our, our recommendation is you have to, you have to get treatment immediately, but if you want the option, you have to do these tests. And if they show any signs of progression, you're done. Right. Um, and thankfully, you know, four weeks of weekly monitoring and all those tests and everything else, um, it stayed stable doesn't didn't show any signs of progression um the fear so, of the, the the progression or the spread could go where yeah so it goes north right okay. uh it's it's already a pretty southerly body part there so from there it will go into your lymph nodes then okay. your lungs sure. and your brain mm. um and and really as soon as you get into the lymph nodes the the recovery and the treatment increases exponentially um where you know, if, if, if it's stage two in your lymph nodes, it's full chemotherapy regimen and it is, uh, not a fun surgery. We'll just leave it at that. So did you compete at the Olympics in 2008, uh, with full cancer and no treatment happening? Correct. Wow. I mean, that's a big decision, man. How did you, how did you sit well with that? Well, and that's, you know, all these years later, uh, and having had a recurrence, three years ago, it's, uh, I still have no regrets, wouldn't have changed anything. Um, how, how does it sit? It's, uh, you know, I, I still look back on it to this day as I wish I would have made that Olympic final, right? I, I finished, I ended up finishing 10th, I think. And, uh, but at the same time, I, I went a best time mm. at the Olympics in the semifinals um, on the biggest stage in the world. And I did it all with cancer. So was it a failure? No, but you know, <laughs> My yeah. warped way of thinking was, man, I wish I'd have made that <laughs> final, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, it goes back to that compartmentalization. Uh, you know how I did it. I, I, you block everything out. You walk on that pool deck. You step behind the blocks, and, and and nothing else matters. Were you thinking at that stage, get me to this race, and then I'm done, or were you thinking, get me to this race, get me to treatment, so that I can continue to swim? Yeah, the latter. <laughs> you know, get me to this race get me to treatment and I hope I can swim. Right. Okay. I had no idea what my future held, mm. but, but again, it's like, well, man, now I got here and I got here under this guise of, of cancer. Well, I want to get back here and, and be healthy. You know, what can I do that's healthy? So it just, it, it was almost like 2008 all over again where, well, man, I did it now, but I, I did it under these circumstances that, that, you know, may have affected my performance may not have, who knows. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, all right, let's, let's get treatment and then figure this out. But again, I, at that time I had no idea if I would swim again, everything was, 
was obviously still up in the air. So going through the, what was the treatment for you once you got back? Yeah. So for me, I was extremely fortunate. Um, flew back, uh, you know, the, the day after I was done swimming, there were, there were no closing ceremonies, no, no celebrations for me. It was, it was leave the Olympics and, and get back. So, uh, flew back to Atlanta, um, and, and was treated at Emory university and, um, thankfully enough. So for me, I had a right-sided orchiectomy. So they, they removed the, the testicle, uh, for surgery. So that was six days after I competed in Beijing. Wow. Um, and then the really scary part was the next two and a half weeks right. To wait on, um, the biopsy results and, and wait on the surgical results for, you know, has this thing spread while you've left it in yourself for two months untreated. Mm. So that two and a half weeks was miserable for me mm. waiting for those results. And I actually, uh, ended up flying up to Indiana university to see Dr. Larry Einhorn, who, um, is, is the, one of the foremost thinkers in the field, right? He's, he's one of the gentlemen that I referenced earlier who established the modern day treatment and the, the, the chemotherapy cocktails that they give testicular cancer patients. Um, so I flew up to see him uh, September 14th, uh, 2008. He declared me, you know, put me through another battery of testing, reviewed all my uh, biopsy results with me from surgery, put me through one more battery of testing and de declared me cancer free the next day on, on September 15th of 2008 which was fantastic. It was great. Right. I don't have to do chemo. Um, you know, I don't need any more surgery. However, you know, this, this was kind of a big, but, um, the makeup of my tumor and, and I, I can't tell you for the life of me what, uh, cause there's six types of, of cancerous cells within testicular cancer tumors. Um, my tumor was made up of three different ones. And one of them that was 40% of the tumor was a very aggressive type. So the option that they left me with was you can take one round of, of um, chemotherapy, bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatinum, and you can essentially have a non-existent surveillance plan or a very limited surveillance plan for the next couple of years. Yeah. However, if you take that one round, which is a three-week round of chemotherapy, uh, you'll probably be, be, uh, sterile. Um, so, you know, you won't be able to have kids naturally. And I'm 24 years old at the time, 23. Yeah. 23 at the time. Uh, no, 24, 24 at the time. And there's a possibility. Um, I think it's the bleomycin. I'm going to mess that up. Whichever one of those drugs is also, uh, a respiratory inhibitor and can affect respiratory capacity. And even one round, you know, could, could minutely affect it. Well, if I want to be an aerobic athlete and swimming, mm. even a half a percent, you know, that, that could have a major effect, yeah. especially when you're trying to be the best in the world because everything counts. So you can take the chemo that will all but get rid of any chances of a recurrence in our opinion. And you won't have to see us, but you know, once a year, uh, for the next two years and then years three, four and five, you know, basically you don't really have to do anything. Or if you don't take the chemo, you're going to come see us every two months, or I'm sorry, every three months for the first year for a full battery of tests, every four months for the second year, every six months for the third year, and every year for years four and five, at which point you will be done with your surveillance plan. So the <laughs> options aren't great. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of stress involved. Like option two sounds good but there's a lot of stress involved because you got to live with that for four years rather than take exactly care of it. yep and so every time you go to get tested every three months you're waiting for a result of oh man is it come back is it still there you know so that's and that's the path i chose to take right. um and and um ironically enough swam better than i have in my life for the following three and a half years all the way till the day i retired so um that was the path i took and uh, it worked. I mean, the surveillance plan that has shown incredible results in, in the trials around the world uh, worked. And, uh, and I made it all five years. Um, you know, that took me even beyond my swimming career. And, and uh, you know, I was officially in remission after five years and then just kept up with yearly tests after that. Um, but it was, it was obviously a difficult choice to make and, and had to keep up with it. And I did. I never missed an appointment. Um, and still to this day, I never miss appointments. But um, yeah, that, that was, that was what I had to do moving forward. 
Is there an, an enlightenment, like an awakening, uh, a, a difference of appreciation of life? Did that happen to you? It's a perspective. And yes, it is, is, an, is an appreciation for the little things. It is an appreciation for the relationships that you have, um, not only in the pool, but outside the pool. It's appreciation for the little things in life. Um, and it's appreciation for the sport and remembering that it's fun, that it is just a sport. And uh, that's really, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again, that's really what I attribute you know, the, my success to for the next three and a half years of being able to continue to improve at the ages of you know, 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28. Do we have to go through that though? Like why, why, <laughs> why, why do we have to get cancer to, get, to have that appreciation? It's hard. I mean, look, when you're you're young, you're ignorant. I, you know, whether you think you know it all or you don't, it's, it's, that's just life. You know, you think you're invincible and it takes experiences for you to be able to learn that. And, and it's nothing that can be taught, right? You don't go to a class for something like that. You don't read a book for something like that. And although there are books and classes out there, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's called a life experience. It's, it's called living. And um you know, I, I don't think I've ever underestimated the impact that, that it has had on me. Well, hopefully we can listen to a podcast now. It can have an effect, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, well, listen, I, there's a lot to get through and I know we're, we're strapped for time. I do want to just kind of touch on a few other things, obviously, in your life. You do jump forward four years and, and make another Olympic team and, and have some success in, in London, right? I did. You know, I, I ended up, um, I mean, the following year, uh, won a bunch of medals at world championships, broke some records, um, kind of started my, my career as a breaststroker really. Um, and then went on to London, um, competed individually in the hundred breaststroke and was able to win a gold medal as a, as a member of the, the medley relay, which, you know, was the icing on the cake for me. Uh, and, and I knew London was going to be my last meet heading into it. I had people call it burnout, which was not the case for me, but, um, I knew I wanted to be done and, and move on with life and see what else is out there at 28. It's the only thing I've ever done in my life. It's my entire identity, you know, apart from being a cancer survivor. So, you know, wanted to, uh, wanted to start a family, wanted to start a career. And, uh, in my opinion, I think professional athletes are, are selfish. They have to be. And, uh, I, I wanted to, you know, dedicate time and, and energy and attention to a family. Yeah. Well, listen, just briefly, there's not many people who can say they've been a direct competitor or even a teammate of Michael Phelps. But in terms of the competitive side of Michael, what made him so tough to beat? What made him so great? I mean, like, look, he's got two arms and legs, just like all of us. But right. how did this man go on to do what he did from your perspective, who, who had an, you know, an intimate kind of a relationship in terms of competitive as a teammate? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I think we, we touched on a little bit earlier and people ask me all the time what it was like to swim against Michael and, and my initial response is it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I will still classify myself as one of the greatest 200 IMers that no one ever knew about, right? I mean, I, I look back and that was what was ironic in 2009 when, when Michael didn't swim the 200 IM and I got to and I, I won a medal at world championships. Mm. You know, it was, it was justified after all these years that I'm actually a good IMer. <laughs> so, so that being said, and all jokes aside, you know, Michael elevated everyone around him and, and, um, and that's the special part about being a teammate of him. But when, when I look at, at Michael and his success, um, yeah, he's got a great swimmer's body in terms of being built for the sport. Um, he obviously had a good work ethic, but there's a lot of people with swimmer's bodies. Yeah, there's a sure. lot of people with, with work ethic. Sure. There's a lot of people with better work ethic and that's not a knock on Michael, right? Not mm -hmm. at all. But where, in my opinion, um, where he excelled was mentally. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that he has obviously come out in his years retiring of, of the struggles that he had. But, you know, he was probably doing a little bit of, to the extent of what I was doing in terms of compartmentalizing, right? Yeah. And, and, and he had the ability to do it better than anyone else in the world. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that is, whether it be preparation, you know, training technique, all that stuff goes into it. But at the end of the day, when he stepped behind the blocks, he was able to flip a mental switch 
that no one else could. Mm-hmm. And he did it time and time again, mm-hmm. whether he was a favorite to win or, you know, being called out by competitors that they're mm-hmm. going to kick his ass. He stepped up every friggin' time. Mm. And it was incredible to watch, you know, it was incredible to be a part of, of his era of swimming. Um, you know, I, Calling him the greatest is, it, of course, it's, but, but what he was able to put together, it's, I think, from a mental standpoint, um, for swimming, again, maybe it's not the healthiest thing uh, in life, but for swimming, it was incredible. Have you struggled with that? Have you struggled with this compartmentalization that you're talking about for yourself and Michael? Where has that struggle to translate in your life? So, you know, I watched uh, The Weight of Gold the yeah. documentary that, that he narrated and produced. And while I can't relate to, to the, the dark depression mm-hmm. that the athletes, you know, talked about, uh, mm-hmm. first of all, I thought it was an incredible documentary um, and very happy he addressed it. Um, while I can't relate to that aspect of it, I can 100% relate to the identity loss, right? In terms of, you have been this elite swimmer your entire life. That's, that's all you've ever done. It's you've committed your entire being to this sport and now it's done and now it's over. So what are you going to do next? And you were in a position where you were the best in the world at something you competed against the other people who were the best in the world there's a very small portion of the population who can say that for anything, whether it's athletics or academics or, you know, being at the top of of the business community, whatever you want to say. And now that's over and you got to find something new and a new identity. Oh my, it's scarier than hell. Mm. And, and, and that's what I struggled with. Oh, okay. What am I going to do next? Mm -hmm. You know? And, and, and that's where I really related it to. Um, because even, I mean, look, even if you take the route of going into coaching, right. Uh, of, of transitioning your success into coaching, which I didn't do, I didn't choose to do that. Well, a lot of people will be like, Oh, well, he's, he's going to, he's a great swimmer. He's going to be a great coach. Not at all. You have to relearn it. Yeah. Two totally separate entities, two totally separate professions. And you look at, you look at some of the greatest coaches in history, they weren't necessarily the greatest swimmers, Yeah, you know, and that goes to that, that, that. I say swimmers, that goes to any sport. You know, a lot of coaches played the sports that they coach in, but they weren't the best. So it doesn't necessarily, you have to, even that identity, you have to relearn or regain. Yeah. Well, you, you've uh, found success in life after swimming. What are you doing these days? So I, I, these days I, I work in software and technology. I, I, um, got into this career two years ago. I spent my first six and a half years in the medical device world, uh, working for Boston scientific in their cardiac rhythm management division. So I went from, from one high stress career to, to another in terms of, of, uh, spending my day in, in heart surgery, which was incredible. I, I appreciate the opportunity there, but, um, you know, really wanted to, to get back to quality of life. So I work for a company now called source day, which is um, a, a hyper growth software company focused on uh, supply chain management and uh, supplier management for companies. So really enjoying the sales world. I've, I've um, been in it, whether it was medical or software, I've, I've been in sales since I retired and, and have really enjoyed it. Wow. Fantastic, man. And, and you and Jerry have children? We do. So we have, um, and, and, you know, all that being said, we, we were able to have children naturally, um, which was fantastic. And, and my daughter is, is seven and my son's four and a half and, mm. um, you know, just, just love being parents. And I think that's, you know, for me, if, if there's something to, to reflect back on, I look, I, I love the stories that I have from swimming. I love the success that I have from swimming, but at the end of the day, uh, it pales in comparison to, uh, to, to being a parent and raising children. And, uh, you know, I remember David saying one of the first days I was on campus at Auburn, you know, a college is special, but it's not the best years of your life. So go ahead and remove that stigma from it. (laughs) And look, I loved college at a great time, had a lot of success, but he's right. He's right. And and I think that applies to swimming. You know, you can, you can be the most successful person in, in a sport, but at the end of the day, there's, there's bigger things to life than just a sport. 
Yeah, fantastic, man. And just give us an update on where you're at with your your cancer now. So, you know, as I mentioned, I, I it, it wasn't thankfully publicized at all, but I did have a recurrence uh, in 2017 where um, I found a, a tumor um, about the size of a golf ball growing on the end of my spermatic cord. So, uh, you know, it was it was tough the second time, especially being a parent um, and, uh, and, and, a, and a husband. Now there was a lot more on the line than just the Olympics. And I had to go through a full round, full three rounds of chemotherapy, had to go through uh, some pretty invasive surgery of, of digging out some lymph nodes. And, uh, and, and it was tough. But, um, you know, that being said, I'm three and a half years cancer free again. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, man, it's amazing to see you healthy. I mean, you look really good right now. And, um, and, and just the way that you articulate your, your life and your career, it's, uh, I'm very thankful you've been able to do that today for us and, and share with us. So thank you very much, man. Yeah, you're welcome. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. And, and again, thanks for having me on. Good catching up with you. Yeah, absolutely. Is there, is there any, is there anything we missed? Is there any, you know, last final life lessons that you want to pass on to anybody? I mean, I, I would say if there was anything to pass on and, and I, I actually had the opportunity to, to speak with the Auburn team recently. And, and this was a message that I have delivered ever since I, re- I retired, but the medals are fun. They're neat. The records are great. The, the trophies are fantastic. But at the end of the day, those get lost. They get broken. They collect dust. They get put away. They're not seen. Not to say that they're not important, but it's the journey that's important, right? It's the path to get those that make you the person that you are, that shape you into the person that you are. And those experiences give you the relationships that mm-hmm. you know, you're going to carry forward long after those records are erased, you know, and long after those, those medals are, are tarnished. So it's, uh, it's about the journey. And it's about the path. And, and I look back on my career and, and that's what I can smile about. It was not an easy path, but it made me the person I am today. It has helped me with the relationships that I have today. And, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm most thankful for. Yeah. Great message, Eric. Thanks for that, man. Um, listen, uh, say hi to Jerry for me. I appreciate you doing this and War Eagle, buddy. Absolutely. War Eagle, man. Best of luck with the, uh, with training and, uh, you know, hopefully with uh, success this summer. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, take care, buddy. Take care, man.